0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life, whose voice, you're certain to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls the day that he left the home of his parents to become a U.S. Marine.
1: My flight to San Diego arrived late that night. must have been around 10 o'clock. We got in. I remember walking down and leading the plane with about six other guys that were enlisting from Portland. And we got there, and there wasn't anybody there to greet us. It was just people who were leaving and walking down the concourse. We had nobody to greet us. I, I remember saying to the guy next to me, I said, Jesus, you would have thought they would have had the Marine band down here to welcome us. So anyway, the area emptied out, and... Half a dozen of us just standing around there smoking and having a cigarette and talking when, jeez, all of a sudden I heard this booming voice just fire at us. And I looked down at concourse and I could see this Marine on a real rapid clip walking fast. And uh, he was heading right towards us and cursing and and commanding us to shut our mouths, put the cigarettes out, and line up for formation for a roll call. And I was standing there, you know, when he appeared in front of us, you know, I looked at him, and boy, I mean, you could see he was sharp, real sharp. He had the campaign hat on, he had a starched khaki shirt, sergeant stripes on the sleeve. He had all the fruit salad and the campaign ribbons on his chest. His shoes were shined like polished onyx. His jawline was as angular as you could ever get. He started yelling and cursing at us as he had us out of the boarding area by then and was telling us how ugly and how stupid we all were. We were the worst lot of human beings he'd ever seen. He didn't know what the Marine Corps had in his mind by taking people like us into the Marine Corps. We were at war, we needed men, not a bunch of weaklings from small little towns around the country. He said he was tempted to ship us all off over to the Navy. Maybe we would do better over there. And then he abruptly ended and told us to march, follow him and march on out of the airport. We get out in the airport and there's this big green bus with little yellow lettering all over it, you know, and we get on the bus, the bus is packed, the bus is full of people. And we get on the bus and it's like almost two, three to a seat. So he marches us all the way down the aisle of the bus, just to just back, right, single file, all the way to the end. Turn, gave us an about face, so now that we're all in this line in the aisle, facing the front of the bus and told us to sit. So we all sat just tightly linked together and the bus was full and now the last plane had come in and we just we went we were going in my opinion we were going to Marine Corps theater but I was more of a smart aleck that night that would quickly be taken care of the next night so we get to San Diego as we arrive on the base in the middle of the night we pull up outside the receiving barracks, and outside there's these rows of yellow footprints. Every Marine in the world remembers the yellow footprints. And the DI gets up in front. It was black as night on the bus. You couldn't barely you could see his silhouette, but you could see the red glow in his eyes. And his voice just came out and filled that bus.
0: Now, when I tell you to, you would get off my bus and you would get on the yellow footprints. Do you understand? Yes, sir.
1: They told you got. 20 seconds to get off of this bus and get on those yellow footprints and God help anybody who's on this bus after 20 seconds. And then he's will move. Boy, we just were getting up and scrambling and pushing and shoving. Guys are climbing over seats, and he's up there screaming and yelling. And there's a DI outside the door. He's screaming and yelling. And sure enough, when he got to 22nd, he just started kicking them in the butt and getting them off that bus. We scrambled outside. We got under the yellow footprint. We stood there at attention. They were three guys, and they were just these DI's were just moving up and down each line of the rows looking at us, making comments about us, yelling at us, and then they told us a single-file march into the barbershop. And we opened up the store, we marched into this barbershop, and there were four barber chairs and four barbers in there, ready to go to work. And each time, man, those hands never stopped moving. They sheared off that hair until they hit a growth on the scalp. And if they drew blood, then they'd stop. Otherwise, everything is coming off anything that is outside of your follicle is going to get cut. And then the floor was just littered with all the really fashionable hairstyles that were very popular back home. But we didn't have any need for hairstyles down here because there would be no women. We would not see any women at all, actually, for quite a while. And so walking through the piles of the hairstyles, and we went in and we got issued our bucket and our toothbrush and razor and a lot of the parts of our uniform underwear, soap, bar soap. And then we get up into the showers. So we're standing, we've got all this gear in our arms, and we're up there outside the shower. And the DI tells us, you know, men, have you people have 60 seconds to get in that shower and scrub all that civilian dirt off your bodies. You're on Marine Corps ground. This is hollow property. This is holy property here. This is Marine Corps property. Get in that shower. You've got 60 seconds to scrub all that dirt off. Get dressed and fall outside in the large auditorium adjacent to the shower room we jumped into the showers and the spray and to help us along because we had some people who not only were slow there some of them really actually were very stupid he decided to count down so we're scrubbing in the steamer going i hear this voice going, 48 47 46 move 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 damn it move 45 44 Forty-three. I don't see you moving fast enough. I want you moving out of this shower room immediately. 39, 38, 36, and we busting our butts to get out of that shower. And we were half dry, all naked, half dry, grabbing our uniforms, putting on our clothes, and running out into the next room through a gauntlet of cursing and yelling and shouting and swipes at our head to get us moving out on that floor to get out there in the auditorium
0: and when we come back more of this story and what a storyteller folks and again we just find ordinary Americans around the country these aren't professional writers screenwriters scriptwriters. they're you they're me they're the person next door Bob McClellan the McClellan Files his story here on our American Stories This is Our American Stories, and we return to the McClellan Files and Bob McClellan's story about the beginning of his time as a U.S. Marine. Let's pick up where we left off.
1: Our uniform consisted of a, one, a pair of green trousers, bright white tennis shoes, a belt and that was untrimmed and that was so long and hung out of the back loop of my trousers like a tail. I had a bright yellow sweatshirt with a bold red Marine Corps emblem on the top and everything else was in the bucket. I got out there and lined up across the tables and I had a Marine facing before me and a box on the table in front of me. Looking into the eyes of the Marine across from me and looking at what they had done to him, I realized he was a mirror to me now. I could only imagine what I looked like looking at him. He had the color of a billiard ball. I hadn't seen sunlight probably since he was born pale skin indicated he had all the blood in his body. He must have retreated deep inside into his interior for safety no doubt. His eyes were wide. He thought he got stuck by a cattle prod. And he was afraid. You could, you could feel it. You could see it oozing from his pores. I just thought, my God. My God, you know, here I am. I'm looking at him. I'm thinking I'm a Frankenstein. I'm a half-made man. I got all the disgusting detritus and trash from my civilian life of character and weakness in my body all of which the marine corps thoroughly intended to change the di's are walking up and down behind us and now I, I took things a little bit more seriously here now i wasn't at the airport uh shooting my mouth off the di's told us to take everything that we brought with us everything and put it into the box and into that box went all the pictures that i brought pictures of my girlfriend, little mementos from home, little gifts from my mom to remind me of home, everything, my clothes, my underwear, everything went into the box. We were ordered to seal that box, address it home, and step back from the table. Stepping back from the table and looking at that box, I realized that box contained my past. Contained all those things that were so important in my life just hours ago. But I knew now, it didn't matter to anybody down here. None of that mattered. Not your past, you don't matter. All that matters is, do what you're told. You're going to get a new life. The new life you're going to get down here is going to be one of purpose. And you're going to have a purpose. And you're going to learn to do it well. And from that purpose, you'll develop your values and your self-respect. Down here, you'll learn to know who you are, where you are, and what you are here to do. But right now, that was a far, far distance from where I stood that moment at the table. All I wanted to do standing at that table was to get the box. I'm sure everybody felt the same way in the room. Get on my clothes and get the hell out of there. I had three years of this ahead of me. D.I. told us to step back. Went up and down the table, made sure everybody had done everything correctly, and then, standing up in the front, he pointed to the single door at the end of the room, and he yelled, "I'm going to give you maggots 20 seconds to get through that door and down those stairs on the yellow footprints." Move! And boy, we hit those doors hard. And going down that stairwell, when your feet aren't in unison, all you can hear is just a constant pounding. Bum, 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 bum of a stampede and going down those stairs. Yeah, men were pushing each other and shoving each other to get out of the way. Everybody had to get down. They wanted to get down there and be on those yellow footprints. This is not a place you want to piss anybody off. And so we were pushing and shoving. And then the other two DIs moved into the crowd like, like hyenas, like animals. And they came in, and they'd isolate a weak recruit, and they'd pull him off to the side. And they'd have him stand there in attention. There'd be one on either side of him. And they'd be yelling and screaming at him within centimeters of the skin on his face. And their eyes would be bulging. And their jaws would be opening, gnawing. And just knew that if you just got anywhere near close to that mouth, they were going to devour you. Meanwhile, the rest of us, just blinded by the confusion and the panic of a mob, we just continued to push and fight our way down that stairwell. We looked like blind men trying to flee a burning forest out the door onto the street, out on the yellow footprints, carrying our gear. We stood there, a real motley looking crew standing on yellow footprints in the middle of the night. Nobody had any idea of time. Time was no longer important down here. You didn't have any time. Time was the luxury for Marines, not for recruits. Stood there in the dark and the D.I. got up in front of us. And just to harass us, he'd come along and he'd knock your clothes and stuff out of your hands tell you to pick it up off the deck and then he said because you people are so stupid you don't know left from right so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna count really slow i want you to lock arms forebreast hold your gear and march when i tell you to ready forward march left Right, left. He started yelling at us because we weren't in unison. Left, right, and then out of nowhere. You got people make me sick. You're nothing but a bunch of cows. You march like a bunch of cows. Get down on your cow faces. Get those cow faces into the deck and give me 25 push-ups. And dropping everything we had, we just hit the deck and took our face and put it into the ground. And tried to pump out as many push-ups as we could, so he started yelling, Get up! Get up, damn it! Get on your feet! Get back into formation! Get your gear! Lock your arms! Ready? Forward! March! Left! I want to hear you moo, he said. I want to hear you moo like cows. That's all you are, cows. Moo as we march. So we all started mooing and mooing and cadence all that was missing was the cowbell and so this cow herd of cows started to march its way with the cadence of the drill instructor left moo right left across the base and anybody that saw us or anybody that heard us they knew who we were in the marine corps eyes We were the lowest form of life on earth. There's none lower, none lower than that. And we marched across the base to our Quonset huts. At 0400, they put us to bed, told us to lie at attention in our bunks, until Reveille. I remember lying there, at attention, listening to the jets taking off. My hut was adjacent to the San Diego runway. The only thing that separated me from freedom was a cyclone fence with Constantino wire on the top. The planes would be taking off in the pre-dawn hours. I knew they were going places. They were taking people far, far, far away from Platoon 3095. I knew they'd be headed north and east and west and south. But I also knew the plane that they had reserved for us was only going in one direction, west. My next stop would not be Portland, it'd be Da Nang. Lying there that night in that bed, I thought about being in the Marines. You know, a lot of men do. You think about, I want to be a Marine. But the distance between the desire to be one and to actually be one is a vast gulf. Young men joined the Marines, they Most of them, I think, have something to prove to themselves and to others. And as the roar of the jet engines flew over my Quonset I I wondered what in the hell did I do? I wasn't interested in proving anything to anybody anymore. I just wanted to go home. When the lights clicked on at 0445 in the morning, a 50-gallon steel garbage can flew by my bunk and crashed into the galvanized steel wall of my hut, announcing Reveille. The day that I had dreaded lying in my bunk, that morning had now arrived. Thrown into the cauldron, I started my day one of my transformation from a civilian to a Marine. I was standing in formation by the time the bugle stopped blowing Reveille.
0: And reveille is, of course, the sunrise wake-up call of the U.S. Armed Forces. And we're there with Bob. He's, he's recounting this as if it happened to him yesterday, because folks, like so many memories in our lives, the big ones, they stick. They stick forever. And we're going to continue with his great storytelling from Bob McClellan. The McClellan files. This one was called "The Blast Furnace." What a writer. And there are so many of you out there like him. With stories to tell, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We want to hear from you. We'll put you right on the air, just like we did Bob. Bob's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're about to tell you the tale of hidden treasures in America. The story of Forrest Fenn is one that captured the imaginations of people all over the country and the world. Here's Jesse.
2: In the year 2010, a wealthy art dealer from Santa Fe, New Mexico by the name of Forrest Fenn hit a treasure chest worth over a million dollars somewhere in the Rocky
3: Mountains. First of all, I'm really not that wealthy. I mean, I can live on the interest, and that's the definition of a wealthy person, I guess. I mean, uh, I have everything I want, but I don't want very much.
2: Forrest Finn was an Air Force pilot with the rank of major, and he was awarded the Silver Star for his service in Vietnam.
3: I had a hard tour in Vietnam. I flew 328 combat missions in in about 348 days. I was shot down twice. I took battle damage a few times. I lost some roommates. I, I lost 22 pounds and didn't even know it. And when I came home, I was I was tired.
2: After his time in the Air Force, Finn opened an art gallery in Santa Fe that openly sold high-end forgeries of famous paintings.
3: I had no education. I'd been a fighter pilot all my life. So when I opened my business, I didn't have a painting. Knew nothing about business, knew nothing about art. Uh, and so I had to start from scratch. My first two shows, I didn't sell so much as a book. And I finally told myself that I had a little bit of money left that I'd saved 20 years in the Air Force. I said, "I'm going to spend this money advertising, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to slam the door and go do something else." And it started working for, for me, and and I learned to play Monopoly in my art gallery. And every time I, every time I, I sold a painting, I took the profit and bought two paintings. And then I took the profit and bought four paintings. And over a period of time, it took me two years before I could finance my gallery out of accounts receivable in
2: 1988 fenn was diagnosed with cancer and came up with the idea during his illness to hide a chest full of treasure for anyone to go find
3: they gave me a one in five chance of living three years and a lot of things were happening about that time I was selling my gallery in santa fe and and I had a, a lot of clients that were coming to see me to to do different things. And it just so happened that Ralph Lauren came to my house. He collects antique Indian things like I did. He didn't know that I had cancer. But we were standing in my my library, and I had something that he wanted. It was a beautiful Sioux Indian bonnet with white ermine skins hanging on it and split antelope horns. And it was a wonderful thing, and he wanted to buy it. And I said, well, I don't want to sell it. And he said, well, you have so many of those things. He said, you can't take it with you. I said, well, then I'm not going. (laughs) And and we laughed and changed the subject. But that night I started thinking about that. Who says I can't take it with me? Why do I have to live by everybody else's rules? If I'm going to die of cancer, I'm going to take some stuff with me. And I made up my mind. So I bought this beautiful little treasure chest, 10 inches by 10 inches and 6 inches high probably Romanesque, 11th or 12th century. Maybe it held a Bible or a book of days, but it was wonderful, had a great patina on it. As for the treasure itself,
2: Forrest Finn loaded the chest to the brim with gold, gemstones, and artifacts.
3: There are 265 gold coins, American, mostly eagles and double eagles. Uh, There are some Middle Eastern gold coins that date to the 13th century. There's a little bottle of gold dust in there. And there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets, mostly from Alaska, placer nuggets. Two of them are so large that, that they're the same size as a, as a hen's egg. They weigh more than a pound apiece. And there are, in this chest, I put hundreds of rubies. There are two beautiful salon sapphires. There are eight emeralds, lots of little diamonds. Uh, Pre clumbian Wakas, 2,000-year-old bracelets, and a Tyrona and Sinu necklace that dates probably 2,500 years old. The fetishes on the necklace are made out of quartz crystal and carnelian and semi-precious stones. And I told myself I wanted it to be visual enough so that when a person found the treasure chest and opened it for the first time, they would just lean back and start laughing.
2: Then came the task of hiding this treasure that was worth over a million dollars somewhere up in the Rocky Mountains, which could be anywhere from New Mexico to Alaska.
3: And when I hid the treasure chest, I had to make two trips because the thing weighs 42 pounds. It's small, but its gold is heavy. And, and when I hid it and I was walking back to my car, I started laughing out loud, and I said, Forrest Finn, did you really do that? <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, but, but I had a whole cart. I told myself... If I I decide later I didn't want to do it, I could go back and get it. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, yeah, this this is perfect. Why why can't I influence somebody a thousand years from now? A hundred years from now? Okay, next weekend. (laughs) (laughs) If you can find it, I think it'll be worth your while. A lady reporter from Texas called me on the phone and she said, Mr. Finn, who is your audience for this strange book? I said, my audience is every redneck in Texas with a pickup truck. A wife and 12 kids, he lost his job. I said, throw a bedroll in your back of your truck and go look for the trash and take the kids. Get the kids out of the game room, away from their little playing machines and let them breathe the sunshine and the things that the forest has to offer. Wonderful opportunity. And I just this last week passed 25,000 emails from people and probably 15,000 of them have told me, Mr. Fenn, we're not gonna find the chest, we know that, but I want to thank you for getting me and my kids off the couch and out into the church.
2: Thousands of people have searched and continue to search for the hidden treasure of Forrest Fenn. And there have been at least four confirmed deaths from people who were following the cryptic clues that Fenn left behind in his book, The Thrill of the Chase. The main set of clues come in the form of a riddle a riddle that anyone can use to find the treasure for themselves.
3: As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where and head of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk, put in below the home of Brown. From there it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up here, creek, Just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found a blaze, Look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, Just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove For all to seek? The answer's I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold.
2: The eccentric millionaire who hid a treasure chest of gold somewhere out in the Rocky Mountains for anyone to find. It's a strange and yet effective way to leave your mark on the world. And unlike so many others, Forest Fenn would have done things completely different had he been given the chance.
3: If I had my life to do over, I'd change nearly everything. I'd do the same thing over and over again. You know, <laughs> uh, you, you read in in these different magazines, they ask a question, what would you change in, in your life? I wouldn't change anything. Everything's been perfect. You know, I think that's such an uh, uh, idiot uh, thing to say, I think. Well, i do the same thing over again. Well, you Nothing wrong with slamming a door and starting out new again. Out of the night that covers me, dark as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And I think that's a good place to stop, don't you?
2: For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
0: Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about families on this show. And today, we bring you some stories from Mark Oppenheimer, whose piece in the Wall Street Journal really caught our attention. Its title, Yes, We Really Do Want to Have a Fifth Child. Mark, a few generations ago, a family having four or more kids would have been nothing remarkable. But now, that's increasingly rare, as you wrote, quote, In 1976, 40% of mothers age 40 to 44 had four or more children. Today, only 13% do. And when it comes to mothers with graduate degrees, like your wife, only 8%. Talk a little about how you and your bride decided that you wanted a big family.
4: When we first met, before we were even dating, My wife and I were talking one time, and it came up just naturally that I thought four would be a nice number of children to have, and and I'm one of four children. I'm the eldest of four children in the family that I come from, so that always seemed perfectly normal, and then my wife, who's one of two, said, oh, yeah, I always thought my family seemed a little small. I thought it'd be nice if there were three or four of us, so we both had a sense that four was a a nice number of children to have, and we were very lucky, and we, we had four children in the first ten years uh, of our marriage, actually I guess we had four children in the first eight years of our marriage and then um, a couple years ago we were talking and I forget who said it first but one of us said, wouldn't it be fun to have one more? and the other one said, yeah that'd be fun and so then we did and I think it was not something that we interrogated too deeply it was not, we didn't go and check our bank account, we knew that we would be as um, as as impoverished uh, (laughs) with 5 we would be we would be it, it, you know either way we weren't taking fancy vacations with four kids or five it, you know once you're up to four kids and and you're on the salary of a, of a writer uh, and and uh, you know my wife is, is mostly a homemaker though she's a lawyer by training you know we're not wealthy people we don't have regular paid child care but if you're going to be home with four you might as well be home with five and it's one more person to love so I don't, have a, I don't have any profound thoughts on it, except we did what we wanted to do. And it's a free country, so we, we were able to do that.
0: Indeed. And, and by the way, you note in the piece, we are not conservative traditionalists, not Orthodox Jews, old-school Catholics, or Mormons, nor are nope. we lefty counterculturalists. We have no aversion to birth control, chemical or otherwise. We're pretty basic middle-class HBO watchers. My idea of living on the edge is refusing to give up soda. So, so talk about the becauses. One of them that was interesting, you brought up your Jewishness. Talk about that, because I think that's important. I've had conversations with my Jewish friends who said, you know, hey, we're just we're, we're shrinking in numbers.
4: There's debate about Jewish numbers. Uh, there's debate about demography. What is certainly true is that the community of Jews who are not Orthodox or what they call ultra-Orthodox Jews is shrinking. The number of Jews who are Reform or Conservative Jews uh, by denomination is uh, pretty precarious and is is probably crashing over the next couple of generations. And I do think that for for Jewry to be a robust uh, community, a robust and diverse community that's not all based in a couple smaller sects, it's auspicious if there are you know lots of babies in all of those communities. I wouldn't say that's why we had a fifth child, but right. I take I take some pleasure in the fact. I mean, I it, it cheers me that there is at least one family, and we do know others, for whom this is a real choice, you know, irrespective of some commandment from God not to use birth control, which is not who we are culturally or religiously. This, this for many families, is a delightful way to live, and that the, the community, and, and in our case, we have a lot of identities. Jewish is one, and you know, American is another. But, but speaking of the Jewish community, that it's, um, that it's good for the community to have families of different sizes. But we certainly have plenty of people modeling not having children or having only one or two and i think it's great if there are models of people having four or five
0: indeed and i think there are some parts of this country where you start walking around and pushing five six kids you're going to get some really weird glances and and by by virtue of the opposite there are some communities in this country where if you're married and you have no kids you'll get some weird looks and there were a bunch of other becauses and this is the answer to why did you have a fifth child? And I'm going to go through a few of them, and I'd love sure. to have you comment. Because every one of our four children has improved my life. Talk about that.
4: Well, that's true. I think that anyone who has any number of children, if if it's a relatively normally happy family, which means happy sometimes and other times in conflict or fighting or you know having the normal struggles people have. But if you're a relatively normal family, one of the things that's true about having even one child is once the child comes along within a few weeks or months. You can't imagine your life before that child. They become part of what you're grateful for when you think of your own existence. And for us, and I think for all people who have multiple children, that's as true of the second and third and fourth as it is of the first. I don't think that anyone wants to trade in any one of their children or give back any one of their children. I mean, sometimes you do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes I can tell you, I, you know, I'll send this one away, and, you know, at those times, it's, that's what Grandma and Grandpa's house is for. You know, there is a kind of logic to the fact that whatever the next child you have is, you will love that child as much as you loved the last one. And so there is a kind of drive to have more, I think.
0: Another because. Because with a big family, I never have to feel guilty about the clutter. <laughs>
4: I forgot I wrote that. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I'm not a super neat and tidy person, and if I had no children, I'd have a lot of clutter, but then I'd be a little bit ashamed of it. <laughs> but with five children, everyone says, "Oh, of course, you know, how how could you have a neat house?" So, it does it does let you off the hook for some things. I mean, uh, you know, another example of that is if you have one child, you might feel, "Well, I have to save enough to send this child to college. When you have five children, there's no prayer that I can afford to send them all to college without a lot of financial aid. So there are ways in which taking on more can be liberating.
0: Indeed. And you also wrote this, because I'm scared of being alone.
4: Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think most parents, if they're being honest, would say that that's part of why we, we grow our families, whether it's just from one person to two if you're a single person who has a child or adopts a child or if it's a couple that has one, all the way up to having eight or nine or ten children, I do think that children are, are hedges against against loneliness. And um and I'm someone who tends toward loneliness. I'm actually not a great um I'm not great at being at, at solitude. Uh some people are, I'm not. I like having people around and it it's reassuring to me. So having children around is, is very comforting. I mean they are they are they're children, but they're also companions and friends and, and comforters, and I think that's really nice.
0: Because my 11-year-old likes poker, and for that, she needs more players.
4: <laughs> well, that's, and that is true. We've trained up the 10-year-old. Our 8-year-old is not really into poker yet, so we have two more, Anna, who's 5, and then the, the new boy, we'll get, we'll get him there when he's 3 or 4. But if we can have a good 5- or 6-person you know, hold'em game with just our family, that would be a huge win
0: yeah and you're going to have to teach me on this because my thirteen year old is a fearless Hold'em player because he 's always playing with my money
4: well we, you've got to play with chips i mean you don't don't actually you know when he 's ready to play with money, you send him out into high school to earn some money
0: indeed, okay, a couple of more because because when I think of those countries where birth rates are so low that nobody has siblings anymore, I get sad
4: i do i do i think that's I think siblinghood is is wonderful. I was really lucky. I am really lucky to have three siblings and um, and it 's hard to imagine life without them. They are the people who know you best they 're the only people who know what it is to grow up in your household, with your parents, your grandparents and that 's a very special relationship and i do i don 't believe that i don 't believe what some of my only children' friends tell me, which is, oh, well, cousins make up the difference or close friends make up the difference i don 't think it 's the same
0: absolutely, and because not being inclined to rock climbing. Microdosing dosing or day trading. I need something a little risky.
4: <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I would say that I, many of my friends have that thing that they do that sets them apart a little bit, especially as we get middle aged and boring in lots of other ways. And, uh, you know, whether it's some sort of mildly extreme sport or whether it's, you know, gambling, which is not something I do again, outside of the family, uh, poker table. And, uh, but you know, having a fifth kid strikes people as as, uh, as a little bit edgy. So I'm I'm happy to <laughs> I've got to do something that raises people's eyebrows, right? I, mean, I don't I don't wear weird bow ties. So right. what am I going to do? <laughs>
0: what are you going to do? And this could be the best of all of them, I think, because having children has made our marriage stronger.
4: Well, that's true. And I, I you know how could I guess there are marriages that are weakened by children. I mean, in our case, in a very kind of prosaic obvious way it gives us even more common ground, even more things that we uh, that only we understand about each other, which is to say being the parent of this child or this one or this one or this one or this one um, and look let's be frank it's really hard to split up if you're together supporting five kids or even one kid I mean I think that I think marriages without children are more likely um, to fail because there's less of a common project and it's easier to separate. Um, that doesn't mean people should have children to, to stay together. I don't. I think that would be a, a false inference. But, um, but certainly in our case, we feel more unified and like we have more to, that we can only do in the world together because we have children.
0: Well, there's more ties that bind in the end, I mean, infinitely more ties that bind Uh, with more kids, because I'm going to weep like a baby when I drop my youngest daughter for her first day of kindergarten, and it will help if I know it's not my last first day of kindergarten.
4: Well, that's true. I'm very sappy, so... (laughs) Every, every milestone pretty much destroys me. So as li- I, need, I need more milestones coming down the pike. And now, you know, I'm 44 and my son was just born. So, you know, I'll be 62 before we're empty nesters. So by then, maybe I'll be a little bit hardened and, uh, and cynical and able to take it a little bit more, but, uh, but not yet.
0: Well, we want to thank you, Mark, for joining us. Mark's the author of the Wall Street Journal essay. Yes, we really do want to have a fifth child. Mark has a Ph.D. in religious studies at Yale, His wife is a lawyer. He's been writing, well, about all kinds of things for places like the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, and Atlantic. Mark Oppenheimer's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of the best material we put up on the air, your stories. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And this next story is brought to us by Alex Cortez, who recently went to a fascinating event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters, what they call the home office, in Bentonville, Arkansas, and pitch their American-made products to get into their over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products over a 10-year period. And Alex now brings us the story of an entrepreneur he met there.
5: Marissa Sergi is a redhead.
6: I think the color of our hair gives us a platform to embrace our true selves. So being able to have that stigma in the public eye that we are these sassy firecrackers that are a force to be reckoned with gives us the ability to really meet our full potential and be fun and quirky and not be ashamed of it. Because we already have the reputation, may as well meet up to it, right?
5: And as you can probably guess by now, Marissa is. She started a wine company appropriately named Redhead at the age of 19, which you'd probably think is illegal to drink wine, let alone to sell it. But not in her state of Ohio.
6: If both of your parents consent, you are legally allowed to have a drink. I've been drinking wine since day one, to be honest. My grandpa, Sergi, would give my sister and I thimbles full of wine, and my mom hated it. She would complain and just scream, oh my goodness, you can't do this. She's only like four or five weeks old. And my grandpa, Dominic Sergi, said, if you don't like it, you could pay for babysitting. And my mom stopped complaining. <laughs> But hey, winemaking is in my blood figuratively and literally. I grew up in a very Italian-centered family, and my grandparents immigrated here from Italy over 40 years ago and brought over the tradition of winemaking. So growing up, I always had lots of family and friends coming in and out of my grandparents' house, drinking wine and eating food just like they were one of us, and it was... Definitely something that inspired me to carry on with the family tradition. My grandpa passed away, I was only two years old, so I don't have any memory of him, but I'm able to embrace his memory through making wine. My father, Frank Sergi, he founded the winery where I work at called Lula Bella Winery. It was just a label to start. I wanted to design a fun label after doing market research, just looking what Labels appealed to me as a young person, not, you know, of age, but I knew labels were very important, so that's why I created Redhead Wine to have a very appealing label, yet having a high-quality wine to match the packaging. And I was able to get a winemaking degree from Cornell University called Viticulture and Enology.
5: Which some people might think is a joke of a program. I mean, you're already doing enough trick in college as it is. Do you really need a major in it? You
6: know what? Yes. I love when people tell me that because the number one most failed class at Cornell University is the wines class within the hotel school. It's because people come in there and be like, oh, I'm going to drink wine all day, get an A, and peace out. Well... Um, When you fail and you can't get your diploma, it is a big deal. It is a lot of wine chemistry, biochemistry, microbiology, vineyard management, plant science, gen chem, advanced chemistry, organic chemistry, wine chemistry, one, two, and three. You can't just walk through the winemaking major at Cornell University drunk for the next four years, you know what I mean? you got to pay attention, you need to know your stuff, or at least get help if you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) I was a classic college student not paying attention in my class, and I was texting and checking my email, and I received an email that if you are a student entrepreneur and had a product or an idea to come to a meeting to receive free wings over Ithaca best wings in Ithaca I love hot wings they're very expensive so I was a broke college student so I was like I'm there I don't have a business but I had redhead wine I happen to have a bottle with me on campus so I was like I'm hungry I'm gonna check it out get some wings and leave hopefully no one will notice me but then I forgot I have red hair I stand out I also had a bottle of wine, so everyone's like, oh, wine, how cool. And then I piled my wings very high on my plate, and then one of the professors running that meeting was like, if you're a student entrepreneur, you must give an elevator pitch at this meeting. It's like, crap. I can't leave because everyone knows I'm here. So I didn't even know what a pitch was. I googled wine industry facts, slapped something together, didn't completely fall my face in front of 100 people that were there, and... Two days later, I received an email from the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences that I was nominated as the Student Business of the Year for my college. I was like, okay, um, I'm not a business owner. I don't know how to even pitch a business professionally at a competition, but here we are. I did not win the competition, but I learned so, so much. I learned how to pitch a business professionally professionally all the business terminology that was really important to communicate when it came to costing and your market strategy, product market fit, uh, target market, all kinds of stuff. I just was a winemaker with an idea. So after graduating college, I moved to Modesto, California, worked for a winery out there. Got about a year of experience, but I was like, okay, I'm 22 years old, I'm single, I have kids, I'm just gonna see if I can make this dream a reality. I packed up my bags from sunny California, moved 3,000 miles back to my childhood bedroom in Ohio, and became a bootstrapped, unglorified entrepreneur (laughs) to launch Redhead. I knew I didn't wanna be eight years old on my rocking chair drinking some gin and tonic one day. And be like, ah, I wonder if I did it. So here we are, it's happening, it's getting real.
0: And when we come back, we continue with this delightful voice, and it's Marissa Sergis, and she is the founder of Redhead Wine, based in Youngstown, Ohio. Her story continues here on Our American Story. We're back with our American stories and with entrepreneur Marissa Sergi's story. The year was 2017, and she'd heard about an opportunity to pitch her redhead wine to Walmart and their open call event.
6: I was just checking email. The Young Talent Business Incubator sent me the application, and I was like, wow, I have no chance. But I was like, the answer is always no if you don't ask crossed my fingers, sent in the application, and I found out a few weeks later I was flying to Bentonville, Arkansas. So I was excited but nervous because I knew there was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When you pitch Walmart, it's important to understand how to work the best with Walmart and analyzing what's the benefit for them and how you'll bring them value. You can't just pitch your product and talk about your product and who you are and your business and how it's gonna work. You need to think about who you're talking to. You need to provide as much value as possible and the product sales will come later. So I had a marketing professor from YSU help me analyze Walmart stores to see what percent of the market I could capture if they gave me a test market. And I believe that really showcased that we did our research. We understand we can't just drop a product on their shelf. Who's gonna buy it? What current Walmart customer is gonna purchase the wine type of thing? And uh, that really helped us a lot. I took a deep breath and just walked in there with confidence. Sometimes you gotta fake it till you make it, but the buyers were so kind and really interested when Walmart invites you to open call they want to work with you even if you walk away with a no or a maybe there's still a chance they want to make it work because they're interested in your product they they wouldn't be inviting you here to waste your time but I really wasn't sure if it was a yes so I asked them hey is this a yes and they said yes and I was very very grateful for that and when I walked out of the buyer meeting I felt like I had an out-of-body experience. I couldn't believe I pulled it off. I couldn't believe they said yes to redhead wine and allowed me to have an opportunity at my dreams by creating a wine brand that could potentially be shared with the whole country one day. So the first person I called was my grandparents. Well, first people I called were my grandparents and they were very excited. and it was nice to share that excitement with them and I put the boots on the ground and started hitting the pavement with sales. I'm a winemaker, I make the wine but part of my test market I had to pitch every single manager or department lead to get them to okay the product and then I would be able to sell it there. As many as I wanted in the state of Ohio, but I knew I could only handle between 30 to 60. So we capped it at that. I didn't want to bite off too much that I could chew because you have to deliver on time and in full. you got to keep your commitments. The minute you're not honest in any business setting is the moment that you lose all of your potential and credibility. So that's something that I really tried to emphasize when I was trying to pitch and grow the company. What was most important was the, the sell-through rate. Are you meeting home offices, minimum sell-throughs? Just the number of units that you're selling per week, per month, per quarter. Are you having a great reputation? Are customers giving good feedback and looking for your product? And 60 stores later, a year and a half in the future, we received modular space. You have a permanent, shelf position reserved for your product and your product only so that is the most prime possession you could have as a a supplier that you can't be kicked off the shelf by other competition the home office has that little reserve sign for you with that tag with your price and UPC on it and it's really cool to see on the shelf now it just happened a couple months ago Small-town, 25-year-old winemaker with zero budget survived a Walmart test market with just true grit. Just going, showing up, asking questions. How could you serve this store better? What could we improve on? How are sales? You have to have those conversations. Just because you're in Walmart doesn't mean you're set. There's a lot of work and responsibility that goes along with having this opportunity.
5: It's pretty incredible that Marissa raised no money to start her business, and she's now in Walmart.
6: Zero. Um, To be honest, I don't even care. I'm going to keep it very real with you guys. In two years, I've only spent $5,000 in marketing. It's just being honest, customer relationships, and putting my best foot forward. I think that's really helped because I am the winemaker, third generation winemaker. It's what I love and I think my customers resonate with that because there's a lot of brands out there and some of the stories are not true. They're just made up just to target a market. Redhead was made because I was hungry for hot wings and I had a bottle of wine with me. That's the real deal and I think that's why it's succeeding because I never overthought it. I just was in the moment. We employ about 40 people total at the company, and we have hired at least six new additional employees due to Walmart open call, so we're very grateful to be able to do that, especially in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, I know a lot of our job losses have been in the public eye, like GM Lordstown closed. We lost 1,700 jobs. Over 40 years ago, the steel mills closed. We lost 40,000 jobs. So being able to be from Youngstown, Ohio, while creating a California quality wine by buying the California grapes while keeping the jobs in Ohio is super special to the area. And although we're only hiring a handful of people compared to GM or the steel mills, it's exciting to know that we're at least affecting one additional family, maybe two, three, four, and we want to continue to do so. Just really grateful for the opportunity to have a partnership with Walmart. They've impacted not only my business, but many in my community, and of course the entire United States. They've committed to invest over $250 billion back in the U.S. economy over this 10-year span that they plan to have open call. And due to research, that's gonna create over one million jobs for our country, and that's something that everyone should be grateful for every day. So, really happy to be here.
5: At Walmart Open Call 2019, 25-year-old Marissa was invited to speak before the 500 entrepreneurs hoping to get into Walmart stores at this event, as she did.
6: Ever since then, I've been paying it forward because I'm just so grateful and want to help others and I think that's why Home Office invited me to speak here and be kind of a supplier on the inside helping everyone feel comfortable and confident to pitch. Just realizing everyone's human. Just be honest, be real, be yourself and I think that's the moment that you could really succeed and uh, do what you're sought out to do to make your dreams happen.
5: Marissa only wished that her grandma could have been there to see how her sacrifice has paid off in Marissa's life.
6: She is absolutely amazing. She only came here with a suitcase and a dream to give the future generations of the Sergi family a better life. So um, I work so hard because I don't want to waste her sacrifice. I wish she could be here today just to see what it's like to be at a retailer like Walmart and to see what I've been able to take from all of her sacrifices to um, be able to be one of the speakers this year at Walmart Open Call. It's just something that I never imagined would happen, but I'm here and I'm going to embrace every moment. Her name is Michalina Sergi, but her maiden name is Valentino. She absolutely loves wine. She's one of those traditional grandmas. You're making meatballs, homemade pasta. You've ate at least three platefuls of food, but you still have to have more and have dessert and an espresso. It's a real deal. So uh, she loves any type of wine, and she definitely enjoys Redhead Red Blend.
0: And you've been listening to Marissa Sergi, and she's the founder of Redhead Wine based in Youngstown, Ohio. And my goodness, to bring 46 jobs or however many she's bringing to a town... What a thing to do, and what a thing for Walmart to do. And my goodness, what a story, committing to buying an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. That's a big deal, and certainly a big deal to people like Marissa Sergi. Marissa's story, and by the way, a story of intergenerational love. Listen to the way she talked about her parents and the sacrifices they make. This is a, this is a voice, it's a classic American voice. In the end, great, great gratitude and a hustle. She gets the order. She gets to Walmart. She says, oh, the work has just begun. I want to make sure I serve Walmart. It's just not about me. It's just not about my product. And that servant heart, boy, it was on display. Marissa's and proud parents and grandparents as well. Marissa Sergi's story and Walmart's story and entrepreneur's story, too, here on Our American Story. And we return to Our American Stories, and up next, a story from, of all places, the Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., a place famous for being the scene of President Abraham Lincoln's assassination. But most of us don't know much more about the story of Lincoln's death. Well, until now. Mike Robinson is a volunteer reenactor at Ford's Theater and tells the unknown story through the eyes of Washington's then superintendent of police, A.C. Richards, And Mike graciously shared with us the audio from one of his actual reenactments. Here's Mike as Superintendent Richards.
7: Good morning. A bit more enthusiasm, if you please. Good morning. Good
3: morning.
7: That's much better. My name is A.C. Richards. I was a superintendent of Metropolitan Police from 1864 until 1878. You may address me as Chief. My office was just across the street at 10th and E Street, and I was in the audience that night of Friday, April 14th, 1865, sitting just there. Would you be at all interested in what I recall from that evening? Yes. Very well, we have some housekeeping measures to take care of first. Those of you who have those devices, you call cell phones, take them out, and turn them off. They have not yet been invented. And the same, of course, is true of flash photography. Now, anyone who has questions about this incident, or wishes to discuss President Lincoln, please feel free to meet with me before the stage, after the presentation. And you should consider this. This may well be your last opportunity to talk to someone who was actually there. There are not many of us left. So I take it the remainder of you are visitors to our fair city, are you not? Yes. Well, the Washington you see today is much different than the Washington of my time. In fact, Charles Dickens came here in the 1840s, and he said, Washington is a city of magnificent intentions. It has grand boulevards that start in nothing and go nowhere. (laughs) Indeed, we had not a single paved road. In fact, the avenue just down here, which was intended to connect the executive branch with the legislative branch, was unpaved, it was built on a floodplain, and every time it rained, it would flood out. There was either too much mud or too much dust. So most of us who lived here used S Street just up here as our major crosstown route. That would become important to the assassins on that evening. Now today, if you walk south of the avenue, you will encounter Constitution Avenue. That was not there at all in my time. That was the Washington Canal, which had been built to connect the Upper Potomac with the Eastern Branch, But by 1860, it had become an open sewer. It was not at all unusual to walk south of the avenue and find cow carcasses floating in the canal. In fact, in 1860, it would not have been at all unusual to go out here on 10th Street and find chickens and hogs wandering the street. They were a sewage system. In 1860, our entire population was a mere 75,000 people, and none of us locked our doors at night. And then the war came, and our lives were changed forever. By 1865, our population had grown to well over 200,000 people, and we all locked our doors at night. The people who came here during those war years were petty foggers and scoundrels. They were people trying to get something out of the federal government. I'm sure that's no longer true in your time, is it? but they required a great deal of entertainment, so Washington became a very exciting place to live. By 1865, we had over 3,500 saloons. If you did not like the star saloon on this side of Ford Theater, you could well go to the Greenback on this side. We had more than 400, how shall I phrase this, houses of ill fame. In fact, early in the war, one of the generals who was here liked to segregate all of the ladies of the night on the south side of the avenue. The general's name, by the way, was Hooker. We called that Hooker's Division. Now, those of you who have ridden our modern transportation system have undoubtedly encountered a stop called Federal Triangle. In my time, that area was called Murder Bay. And you dare not go there any time of night or day, for you would not return. Indeed, those war years were very exciting years. And there was no more exciting time than that week in April of 1865. That week started with Palm Sunday, April 9th, 1865, when Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia, and we started to think that perhaps this terrible time was finally ending. Now, I know that many of you in the audience think of our War of the Rebellion as a remarkably romantic period, beautiful ladies in hoop skirts and handsome, brave young gentlemen in military uniforms. And indeed, we all enthusiastically marched off to war in 61. After all, this war would last for only three months. Or so they told us. What fools were we? By 1865, we had all seen the elephant. By 1865, we knew what war was. By 1865, we had lost more than 750,000 of our finest young men. So many young men. This was a whole generation of future leaders that have been taken from us. There was hardly a household in the nation, north or south, that was untouched by mourning. It was a cruel, cruel war. So you can imagine how we felt that following Monday when we learned that Robert E. Lee had surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia. Now, there were still over 100,000 Confederates in the field, and the Confederate government had not yet been captured. Everyone knew that Bobby Lee had the most important army in the Confederacy, and we started to think that perhaps this was the beginning of the end. So a group of us Lincoln men, and I must admit, I was a Lincoln man then, I am a Lincoln man now, and I shall always be a Lincoln man. A group of us got together and we marched up to the White House to serenade the President. As we were singing, he came out on the balcony, and we shouted, Speech! Speech! There was no one better speechifying than Abe Lincoln, and we expected something very special this evening. After all, he was the man who had led us through this terrible time. But old Abe, he hated to speak off the cuff. He told us if we would come back the following evening, he would be sure to have a few words prepared to say to us. Of course we did that. Well, I must tell you that he surprised us by what he had to say. It was not at all an inspirational speech. It was a very technical talk about how he would reunite the nation, what would come to be called Reconstruction. He said that he would emancipate all the slaves. Now, that certainly surprised no one. As many of you know, in January 63, he had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed all the slaves in secession territory. And indeed, by February 65, we had passed the 13th Amendment. It had not yet been ratified, but we were well on the way to eradicating this terrible blot, the blot of slavery, which lay upon our Constitution. What he said, in addition, was that he felt that intelligent black men and those who fought for the Union cause deserve the right to vote. Now, he had certainly come a long way from the time when he was advocating colonizing all blacks outside of the nation. But upon reflection, it seemed only just. More than 200,000 brave black men fought for the Union cause. Two thirds of them were former slaves. They were fighting for their families, but they were also fighting for our country. Without them, we could not have won the war. Had they not earned the right to vote? I put it to you, had they not earned the right to vote? Many of us thought so, but not all. There were three men standing on the periphery of the crowd, one dressed all in black, turned to the other two, and he said, And now, by God, I'll put him through! That's the last speech he'll ever make.
0: And that man, of course, was John Wilkes Booth. And the story of what Booth did next, well, you're about to hear that after the break. And by the way, it's so true, 750,000 were wounded or killed in the Civil War, and not a household more than likely was left unscathed, north or south. And brothers, fellow brothers and sisters were torn apart by this war, and West Point grads who went to college together, got trained together, ended up, well, fighting against one another in this most important war that, well, healed, or at least started the healing of the original sin of this country, slavery. When we come back, more of this story, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, here on Our American Story. Continue here with our American stories. And the story of President Abraham Lincoln's assassination at Ford's Theater is told by their incredible volunteer reenactor, Mike Robinson. Mike tells the story through the eyes of then Police Chief A.C. Richards and picks up the story with the surrender of Robert E. Lee's Confederate Army earlier that week.
7: Well, the remainder of that week was one of happy celebration. We held a grand illumination on Thursday. We were awakened by cannons booming all over town. Many of the windows in our homes were broken, but no one seemed to care. There was a grand old glory hung from the post office building. Across the street at the patent office, the building was lit by 5,000 candles. It lit the entire universe. That evening, as I walked up the avenue to the Capitol to watch fireworks, people would grab and embrace me. We were so happy that this terrible time was finally ending. So the following day, Friday, April 14th, 1865, when I learned that Abraham Lincoln would be here at Ford's Theater that evening, I decided I should be, too. Now, this was Good Friday. I would not have normally come to the theater on that evening. Indeed, I came that evening not to see the play Our American Cousin. I came to see that great man, Abraham Lincoln. Well, that day dawned rainy and cold. Mrs. Lincoln would testify afterwards that she and the president had made some time for themselves on the afternoon of that day. This had been a long war, and the Lincolns had very seldom had the opportunity to be alone together. They took the opportunity this afternoon. She said as they were riding up the avenue to the Navy Yard, she found that the president was happier than she'd ever before seen him. He turned to her and he said, Mary, I consider this day. The war is finally at an end. And between this terrible war and the death of our dear Willie, we have been miserable for much too long. We must promise ourselves that in the future we will be happy. Consider this. That may have been the happiest moment of Abraham Lincoln's entire life. Well, the play was scheduled to commence at 8 that evening. The presidential party was nowhere in sight. The show started anyway. It was not until about half past eight that President Lincoln and his party came into the building, they climbed the spiral staircase, and were seen walking across the dress circle. The leading lady stopped the play, the band rose up and played Hail to the Chief, and the audience went mad. This was the man who had saved our nation. We watched him as he walked around the dress circle and went through this yellow door. He next appeared, just here, turned to us, smiled at us, obviously he was enjoying us as much as we enjoyed him, doffed his hat, and the play recommenced. About nine that evening, another actor in this drama came into the theater, but not through the front door this time, he entered through the stage door, dropped through a trap door, proceeded beneath the stage, remember the play was ongoing, emerged from a trap door on this side, went down the alley, and into the Star Saloon. He would fortify himself for the dirty work yet to come. He Came back into the theater shortly before 10 that evening. He was seen talking to some of the patrons in the back of the theater. Can anyone tell me what wilkes Booth's profession was? Actor. He was an actor, indeed, and this was the largest role he'd ever played. This evening, he was playing on a world stage. He was not about to hide anything he would do this evening. He sought to achieve his place in history. Shortly after 10, he climbed the spiral staircase, walked around the dress circle to a man sitting just outside the presidential door. The man's name was Charles Forbes. He was a presidential messenger. Booth walked up to Forbes, reached into his pocket, and presented Forbes with a calling card upon which it said, J. Wilkes Booth. Remember, he was not trying to hide what he was about to do. In fact, I have often wondered since that evening, had Forbes shown the calling card to President Lincoln, would he have invited Booth into the box? Lincoln had seen Booth on this very stage in 63 and admired his acting talent. Had the President seen that calling card, would he have invited his own assassin into the box? We shall never know the answer to that question. But we do know that Forbes allowed Booth through this yellow door into the outer vestibule of the box. Booth closed the door and propped it shut. He was waiting for something he knew would take place during the third act, second scene of this play. The play was Our American Cousin. It was a comedy about a bumpkin from Vermont who went to England to marry an English girl, and then her mother found that he had no money. Well, you can imagine what happened to that marriage. There would be a point in this play, third act, second scene, when the leading man would be the only man on stage, leaving it unobstructed for an escape. He has just been told by his potential mother-in-law that he cannot marry his fiance, and he addresses her as she walks off stage. Not familiar with the manners of good society, hey? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside that old gal, you psychologizing old man-trap at which point the audience burst into laughter. That was Boo's cue. He entered the inner box, approached the president rapidly from behind, reached into his pocket, pulled out a 44 caliber Derringer and fired once into the back of the president's head. The first man to realize what had happened was Major Rathbone. He had been sitting in the corner. He jumped up and struggled with Booth. Booth threw the gun down, pulled out a dagger and tried to stab Rathbone in the heart. Rathbone defended himself, but he was sliced to the bone. Booth leapt to the stage, landed awkwardly on his right leg, went down on that knee. As he rose up, he brandished a bloody dagger above his head, turned to the audience and shouted, SICK SIPPER Tyrannos! It's the state motto of Virginia. We had used it in our war against old King George. It means us always to tyrants. Not coincidentally, it's what's reputed to have been said upon the assassination of Julius Caesar. That was Booth's statement. He was saving the country by assassinating a tyrant. He was Brutus to Lincoln's Julius Caesar. He ran across stage and out the stage door. Major Rathbone came to the edge of the balcony and shouted, Stop that man! Stop that man! That's when I first realized something was terribly amiss. I left my seat in the audience and made my way to the stage. That whole period of time from when the gun was fired until when I arrived on stage was only slightly more than a minute, but it seemed an eternity. I searched the darkened stage for the culprit but could find no one. Eventually, I made my way to the stage door and opened it just in time to hear the sound of receding hoofbeats. It was not until I came back into the theater that I was told that the president had been assassinated. I was the first officer on the scene, so I immediately started the investigation. The first person I interviewed was Miss Laura Keene. She was the star of the show. She told me, I know not who shot the president, but the man who ran across stage was Wilkes Booth. We knew within half an hour that John Wilkes Booth was the assassin. Subsequent to that, I talked to Mr. Ferguson, who had been sitting just here. Ferguson owned the Greenback Saloon on this side of Ford's Theater. He told me he had frequently seen Booth associating with Davy Harrell, Louis Payne, George Atzerodt, and John Surratt. Shortly thereafter, we learned that this was a much larger conspiracy. We heard that an attempt had been made on the Secretary of State's life this was not just to assassinate our beloved president, it it was to destroy our very nation. We launched the largest manhunt in American history to run the miscreants to ground 12 days later outside of Port Royal, Virginia. Booth was caught in a tobacco barn in the early hours of the morning of April 26, 1865, long before sunrise. The cavalry set the barn afire to force him out. He could be seen moving about inside, When he reached for his rifle and headed for the door, Sergeant Boston Corbett, fearing for the lives of his men, pulled his pistol, took aim, and fired once. Striking Booth in the neck and severing his spine, he would die within two hours. A slow, miserable death, appropriate to a dastardly assassin. But do you know what his final words were? Tell my mother I die for my country. In his own mind... He was the hero of this tragedy he himself had authored. He had saved the country by assassinating a tyrant. John Wilkes Booth sought to achieve a place in history, which indeed he did. But do any of you think of John Wilkes Booth as a great American hero? He shall be condemned through eternity as the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. That night of Friday, April 14th, 1865, Our beloved president lay dying in his box. He was attended by three physicians. They concluded almost immediately that the wound would be mortal, but a theater was not an appropriate place for such a man to die. They carried him around the dress circle, down the spiral staircase, and out into the street, looking for a place to make him as comfortable as possible in the few hours he had remaining to him. One of the boarders at the Peterson House, just across the street, recognized their dilemma and invited them in there. They brought the president in, took him straight back to the back bedroom, where at 722 the next morning, April 15, 1865, Abraham Lincoln passed into history. As he died, a light cold rain began to fall over Washington. It was as if the very heavens wept at the loss of our beloved president. I shall always remember that terrible evening. It started with a small comedy and ended as a large tragedy. Good day to you all.
0: And a special thanks to our regular contributor, John Elfner, who loves history and teaches history, for bringing us this story. And if you have story ideas for us, make sure to send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's our American Network. Because we'll tell them. And we particularly, if you know a museum or some person in charge of things like this, and all over this great country, there's every kind of museum imaginable. And we love the passion that's exhibited here by Mike Robinson. And again, he's the man who's the volunteer reenactor at Ford's Theater. And he tells this story with great passion. He also worked at Mount Vernon, so he has great knowledge of Washington's home. And he also, from what I understand, knows quite a bit about the Underground Railroad as well. So you may be hearing more from Mike Robinson. The Assassination of Abraham Lincoln, here on Our American Stories.